We continue through, working through the book of 1 Samuel. We're on chapter 16 today. And from the very first chapter, Samuel and Saul have, well, Samuel anyway, and then Saul pretty quickly thereafter became the central figures on which the uh, historical narratives have been about. Today they continue, but now we start getting the, uh, not the first, but the second glimpse anyway, of sort of the next step on the Lord's intervention into the affairs of humanity on the face of the earth. He is not a deity who is distanced and removed. He is involved up close and personal and remains so to this day. The people's choice for king, who that's what Saul was and who he was, is in the process of being dethroned, not by revolution, not by a military coup, not grassroots, but rather by divine appointment and initiative. God is the one doing the unseating. And while Saul was crowned by divine decree, it was a decree that was administered. This is again is by way of review. It was all administered because of the hardness of God's people's heart and the short-sightedness of God's people demanding a king. Why? Because all the other nations had a king, had an earthly human king that they could see and could rally the people behind. They weren't satisfied with the universal king of all as their king up close and personal. I was thinking about, you know, the the kind of the classic snippet that we've all been through ourselves when we were children, but we like to forget that and focus on our own children, realizing, you know, we've even said ourselves, well, so if everybody else was doing it, would you do that? You know, well, just because everybody else has one doesn't mean you have to have one. I remember the movie Jingle All the Way with Arnold Schwarzenegger and his little boy, you know, the like like with us, you know, there's usually one toy that is like it for Christmas season, and it's the one that everybody's got to have. And his little boy has to have Turbo Man. It was a little super action figure or what have you. And I remember the words of the little kid to Arnold. And he says, yeah, Dad, all the kids are going to have one this year. And anybody who doesn't have a Turbo Man is going to be a real loser. That was God's people. Yeah, God, come on, man. I mean, look at all the nations around us. They have one. And anybody who doesn't have one is going to be a real loser. And so finally, God just sort of figuratively speaking, throws up his hands and he tells Samuel to give them what they want. He had warned them repeatedly that this king that they are desiring, no, demanding, are not going to bring them an improvement in the quality of life that they were experiencing. It wasn't going to improve their prosperity. It wasn't going to improve their peace and much to the contrary. And so like a loving father who decides that what his know-it-all teenaged son or daughter needs at this point in their lives is a good old object lesson. We're just going to have to, you know, let them have what they're insisting on, knowing what lies ahead right around the corner and letting them experience it in all the force of what it is and all the negativeness that it's going to bring. And maybe that way they will finally learn. And so he says, Samuel, give him, give him the king. With that last straw breaking the divine camel's back, Saul's reign is coming to an end. And this time now, Adonai, Jehovah, again, the creator of all things, is going to 
himself make the choice as to who will be the next king of God's people. We left off last week with Samuel the high priest mourning the demotion that was announced concerning Saul. And God now comes in First Samuel 16, comes to Samuel asking, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Meaning what? Meaning Saul's not a poor, unfortunate victim of circumstance, Samuel. Don't be feeling too sorry for him. He wasn't just an innocent bystander who had been dealt a bad hand. And I understand that the two of you now by this time go way back. I, I do. I get that. And so God doesn't really chide Samuel, but he does say it's time to get over it because Saul is paying the price for his own free chosen disobedience to the clear decrees of the king of the universe. It's interesting to me that Samuel still has such a soft spot in his heart for the guy who was very literally a royal pain if you get it. And yet the Lord doesn't rebuke Samuel, as I said, but he says, look, it's time to move on. So these little seemingly insignificant snippets of being able to witness God up close and personal involved in the human affairs of life when he created us to be human in all of our frailties. And we see how he works with all of that. And that should be an encouragement to each of us, which is why I really appreciate the book of Job. There's plenty of weighty theological issues in that book, but that's not why I appreciate it. More I appreciate it because I love the way I see how God patiently permits Job to be human in all his frailties. He allows Job to pout. He allows Job to argue with him. He allows Job to question him and his, and he expresses his displeasure with God's handling of the situation in Job's world and tells him clearly he doesn't like it too much and you got some answers to give me here and god patiently sits back as if to say okay get it get it off your get it off your chest get it off your chest you done yet oh you're not done it goes on for several chapters okay how about now nope not ready yet okay you let me know remember what i said last week about you don't have to agree with the way God operates in the universe. You don't have to accept God's clear counsel for life. But you can't avoid the consequences of just blowing those things off. There is a price to pay. And in fact, Paul writes to the church of Galatia in the New Testament saying, that which you sow, so shall you reap. It is a New Testament axiom, but we see that being played out all the way back to Genesis from the Garden of Eden forward. Saul was reaping what he had sown, and unfortunately, so did the people of Israel. Last week, you may know that just just days ago, Southern Ireland rescinded their long-standing laws against murdering their babies this past month. They celebrated undoing their abortion laws. They celebrated by dancing in the streets. And I mean literally. 
And when I was looking through the various images of just seeing the massive uh, celebrations of the public and the kinds of signs, this is the one that stuck out to me. Really? For your daughters? What you mean is for the daughters who you allow to come into the world and survive. The legacy you are leaving your daughters and your sons is one of abject rebellion to the creator of the universe and there will be a steep price. And there has been, as we know too well in this country, price to pay. You just joined the ranks is what I said out loud when I first heard of it. You just joined the ranks of all those nations, again, including America, marked out for the wrath of God against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's verbatim from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, chapter 1, the book of Romans, verse 18. The Lord tells Samuel in verse 16, okay, look, I get it, you're grieving, understood, but blow your nose, wipe your eyes dry, and fill your horn now with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for, and I put in there parenthetically, for this time I have selected a king for myself from among his sons. So Samuel has a commission, another commission yet by God that he has to carry out. And understandably, he's apprehensive. After all, Samuel, as the prophet, was the immediate human agency through which God spoke to Saul. And you know, sometimes it's hard to separate the messenger from the message. And so I view him thinking on probably many occasions in his experiences with Saul. Remember, Saul, don't shoot me. I'm only the messenger. But that seems not to work out too well when someone, actually anyone, has to preface their remarks in such a way. Because what happens is they end up on the receiving end of that person's ire anyway, who was offended by what they say. And so Samuel would like some assurances that this is going to go okay for Samuel. And God says, fill your horn, Samuel, and go. So Samuel says, but how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. Understandable. Apprehension. Well, let me pause there for a minute and bring up another old and long dead at this point in time character named Abraham. He is a huge name in the history of God's people. In fact, he's a huge name in the history of the world. And he is held in high honor specifically for his phenomenal, tremendously great faith in trusting God in unreasonable situations. Abraham, get up and go. Okay, but where? To a land, yes, that I will show you when you get up and go. And Abraham said, okay. But Abraham trusted God even in impossible situations. Abraham, go and sacrifice your son, your one and only son. And he is held up deservedly in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11, often called Faith's Hall of Fame. 
We read that by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. What we don't think too much about that theologically is that Abraham was not merely told by God to offer your son Isaac in sacrifice. But remember that Isaac was the one through whom the promises were going to be carried through into perpetuity. Meaning what? Meaning if Abraham sacrifices the carrier of the promise, which means of Messiah, all that comes to a stop. And what does Abraham figure? I don't get it. I don't understand it. But God knows what he's doing, and I am going to listen to him and do what he says. Samuel, compared with Abraham, his faith pales, obviously. But let's not be too hard. Samuel is still a very faithful guy. And so the Lord says in verse 2, So take a heifer with you, Samuel, and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Again, notice the level of intimate divine involvement here. You shall go and take a heifer and you shall sacrifice and you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. I repeat, it's interesting how the Lord is micromanaging what is inescapably the politics of the day. So Samuel did what the Lord said, and he came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling. What do you mean, Samuel, the high priest is here? Uh Uh-oh, what did we do now? He came trembling to meet him and said, Do you come in peace? And Samuel said, In peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Now consecrate yourselves, that means get ready, prepare yourselves ceremonially for all the offerings that are to come, and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice as well. This is hands-on politics. It's hard to get any more hands-on than this. And the cultural crusaders of our day who are diligently devoted to trying to expunge any and all religious connection, consideration, and legitimacy from our political processes are merely doing the work of the kingdom of darkness. We're told in the New Testament we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We're not wrestling against human beings. We are wrestling against principalities and powers, meaning satanic, demonic, very real, evil, wicked forces. God has been involved in politics from the very beginning, and he is involved in politics now, and he shall continue involved in politics forevermore while this world remains as should his people. Now, before we move an inch further down the timeline of history, and at the risk of beating a dead horse, which isn't quite dead, though it is severely wounded, I'll admit that, 
And it's on its last leg, so to speak. But God is making sure that the next king is actually, surely, truly appointed by God himself. Why? Because again, old material, Saul had been chosen by popular acclaim. And why was he chosen? The scriptures tell us because he was tall and he was handsome and he looked kingly. And when he smiled, that tooth went bing with a little sparkle. Well, maybe not, but. So we're now years down the timeline of Saul having reigned as king for, for several decades at any rate. And Samuel now has also experienced firsthand the grave consequences of having a handsome, tall, kingly, but very inept, to say the least, looking leader. Well, you'd think Samuel would have learned a few things there. But right out of the gate, what happens when Samuel now himself is going to be standing as the parade of potential leaders come by. Well, we're told, when they entered, Samuel looked at Eliab, and he thought, ah, wow, what luck. What a coincidence, the very first son of Jesse to pass by. Obviously, surely, this is the Lord's anointed one who is standing before me. And why not? He looked great. But the Lord says, wait, 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 no, stop. Samuel says, seriously? Why? And God says, why do you think this one is the one? He says, well, I don't know. His face just rings a bell. I mean, he'd make a great looking king. He just, he just looks regal. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance. Or at the height of his stature. Boom! He says, because I have not chosen this one. I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And so did William A. Erickson. That doesn't sound like a very Jewish name. Where is he going? No, he's not. William Erickson was the 27, 28-year-long reigning administrator of Auburn General Hospital in suburban Seattle. And he was looking for a young man that he could bring on board and he could raise up to be the heir apparent to take over for him when he would retire, which was pretty imminent. And somehow, out of the most fluky circumstances, you've heard me tell snippets of this story before. It's also in The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, a fantastic book on debunking the prosperity gospel, if I do say. One of my favorite authors. Oh, yeah, I wrote that. Um, At any rate, make a long story longer, I mean shorter. Mr. Erickson gives me a call and says, well, I'm going to be in, we were in Atlanta at this time. He was in Seattle. He said, I'm going to be in Chicago for a board meeting for our hospitals. There were five that were owned by the same people. And he said, why don't I fly you up to Chicago? I thought, well, that's cool. That's where my family is. I'll be able to see them. I had no mixed motives here. I did not want the job. Clearly did not want it. I knew, as did Barb, that we were going to be going to Seattle that we were going to get that and take that job and everything else, but I did not want it. 
Furthermore, I was woefully, dismally unqualified for the job. This requires an MBA and actually a specialty in hospital administration of an MBA. I had nothing of the kind. Well, I did have a paper route when I was in fifth grade or something. Hey, I had to go door to door and with my little ring with tags on them that I'd punch when I attempted to collect $3.75 from them and heard every excuse under the sun as to why they couldn't pay me that week. That's a lot to juggle for fifth grade. That's business, but yeah, that's not quite on par with hospital administrator in charge of billions of dollars of budget. Oh, I did start a car wash service when I was in junior high. I was in seventh grade. My friend was in eighth grade. And we had a burgeoning car wash service. We came to your house, washed your car, had various levels of service and everything. We had more work than we could handle. That was a good summer. I was so cash flush. That was my extent of business. And so I thought, okay, I'll go to Chicago because this by this time he was being the persistent one. And I had already told him. I shared most of this with him. And I thought, so this will just seal the deal. Well, I had to get through the luncheon at the hotel that we were both staying at. It's one of the worst crises of my life. I order a salad for lunch, thinking it would be safe. Not when the restaurant brings you out a bowl about this size with a salad this size. And I have to cut my salad. It's just one of those things. So I get the salad with blue cheese dressing, and it comes out with blue cheese dressing like a volcano and a cherry tomato, boop, right on top. Mr. Erickson is talking and trying to conduct an interview, right? And I'm just freaking out because I'm sitting here going, how am I going to cut this without this being a, an embarrassing disaster? Yeah, oh, right, right, Mr. Erickson. Sure, oh, I understand. So he takes a break from talking to go down to his food, and I go, this is it, knife and fork into the salad. And the second my knife touched that salad, that cherry tomato, like a boulder on top of Mount Everest, starts going down and like a snowball is collecting blue cheese dressing as it comes. And it goes bloop, 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 bloop. And I'm like, ah. We can pull the coat closed. He'll never see it. And so I'm going through my lunch knowing I've got blue cheese dressing all over the front of me. I mean, I wanted to make a good impression, right? I didn't want the job, but I thought that would all take care of itself. Well, we're done eating. I get through that crisis. I still hit it. I don't remember how. And he says to me something totally unexpected. He says, I'd like to go back up to my hotel room, hotel room with you and spend some time in prayer together. Why? Well, I, I knew he was a very devout Christian. And he said, let's just go up and spend some time in prayer. Outward appearance, I go, yeah, whoa, <laughs> Mr. Confidence here, what a great idea. Yeah, man, I'm Mr. Spiritual, let's go do this. I was 27 years old, right? So we go up to his room, we spent a considerable length of time in prayer, both, both of us praying. And knowing everything wrong with me and all the deficiencies and the non-education and non-experience, he says, 
I'd like to fly you and Barbara out to Seattle to come and see me in my environment and get to know each other better. (laughs) What didn't you understand about I'm not the guy? Not only am I not qualified in those ways, look at me, I'm short, dumpy, I was 27 and I looked like I was 16. Not the kind of guy that commands respect from physicians and head cranky nurses, I mean head nurses. Actually, our head nurse was really a gem, and she took me under her wing, <laughs> kind of as her grandson, you know. Billy, come here. Let me pinch your cheek. And so, yeah, I ended up taking the job that I couldn't refuse because I knew it is what the Lord wanted for us. Mr. Erickson was not concerned about the outward appearance, but about the heart. Now, I could question his judgment in that. But actually, it was truly a match made in heaven. And it worked exceedingly well. So, Eliab looked impressive to Samuel, but he wasn't the Lord's man. So then Jesse called Abinadab, and he made him pass before Samuel. So he comes forward again. Just another great looking guy. And I'm sure that Samuel was particularly taken by the dead wolf around Abinadab's neck. Probably said, wow, okay, nice touch. That is really cool. But the Lord had not chosen this one either, verse 8. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And I'm thinking... Yeah, I'm thinking that Samuel may have struggled with this one perhaps more than the others. Because he remembered old Eli. Remember, he was dropped off as a child for Eli to raise him. He remembers old Eli telling him bedtime stories of an enchanted world with strange creatures called hobbits and something about a gold ring. There was a strange familiarity about Shammah that just seemed right. But no, no. The Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, "Ah, the Lord's not chosen any of these. And Samuel said to Jesse, is this, I mean, is this it? Are these all your children? And he said, well, yeah, no, there remains yet The Hebrew is translated often youngest, but the Hebrew is the same word for the smallest. And behold, to make that matter worse, he's out tending sheep. Meaning, no, this is, no, of all my, this is not the one that you're looking for. And Samuel said to Jesse, well, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. So he sent and he brought him in, and now he was ruddy. That means he had like a a, kind of a... (laughs) Uh, a, a rough reddish kind of mottled complexion. Oh, but he had beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance, although he'd rumored to have been shorter than the others and with very short arms. And then that's a marginal, marginal addition in the ancient text. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and he anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. The second king. 
the second king in Israel's history is anointed. Whatever. Now, let me drop back to chapter 13 for a moment again by way of review. Saul decided to offer the sacrifice before the battle, before Samuel the high priest had arrived. So Samuel said to Saul, You've acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And in the omniscience of God Almighty, in the all-knowing character of God, David was effectually already king, already way back then. But despite the previous ancient photograph you saw, we really do know what King David looked like, thanks to Hollywood. Amazingly like Richard Gere. Anyway. In chapter 13, Saul was already dethroned as far as, again, God's, you know, remember, God is outside of time. So as far as God was concerned, there hadn't been the formal rite and sort of the ritual and everything to make that official, but that was just a matter of formality. And now, even though Samuel has anointed David king, David's and Saul's relationship is still one of subservience of David to King Saul. But more and more, there will be this transition, as we'll see as we continue through 1 Samuel, of David acting out of more and more of that title of king. And of course, Saul still doesn't know that the man that God has anointed as his successor is David. Verse 14, So the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. Let me summarize this long passage. And so at the end of the day, he says, Find me a man who is skillful in in music, because the music seemed to have this saving effect on the evil spirit that would come and torment Saul. And of course, someone says, Well, I, I know this guy is really talented with a harp and lyre and all of that. And of course, it was David. And David became that individual to Saul. Again, this was not coincidence. This was the machinations of God who is intimately involved in the politics of the era. God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Many years ago, Barbara and I had not been in Waterville very long. Two of our children were at uh, Waterville High School at the time. And of course, for, for forever since we've lived, lived here, Waterville being the city, which coming from Chicago, that kind of blew me away that Waterville was called a city. They had this fantastic opportunity in the schools to introduce the national pilot project, pilot program for AIDS education. And of course, it was wretched. And of course, they billed it as, this is not going to cost us anything. They lied, as it always does cost eventually. Yes, the government paid for the program for three years. And then after that, see, now everybody's used to it. Oh, now we've got to have it. We can't live without this. But now the taxpayers have to fund this new AIDS project that was free forever and ever as it continues. 
At any rate, I was part of a committee that was supposed to be reviewing the AIDS pilot project. <laughs> and we walk in. It was our very first meeting. There were nine or ten people there. And I only knew, knew Eric Haley, the principal, at the time. And I'm listening, and we just start talking. And, I mean, right away, there's a woman who just sort of dominates by her obnoxiousness. Okay? And, I mean, I'm sitting there, and, I, and I'm just going, oh, man, this is a bad enough assignment that I volunteered for. But to have to sit here and deal and listen to that, that's how it graded on me. And it's like when everybody, somebody had to say something, you know, she had managed to chime in and, and always, you know, like, oh, this is going to be a long and painful process. Well, as the night went on and she kept haranguing individuals, I'm sitting there going, wait a minute. She pulled a fast one on me here. She's saying things that I would say if I ever get a chance to speak. Wait a minute. She's on our side. <laughs> and she was. She even ended up coming to faith for a few years. And I thought, as I sat there, it's like, wow, there you go again. Judging by outward appearance, how wrong I was. Don't we all do it? And I have to tell you, I, I do it to a fault, and I don't accept it. I honestly do not. It is a matter of prayer but I still catch myself doing it way too much. And as soon as I do, I go, Lord, oh, I did it again. Help me to see them as you see them instead of, you know, and, and it's really eye-opening when you realize how wrong you've been about somebody. God does not judge that way. And think about this, though. If he did judge on outward appearance, how many of us in here this morning would have been able to come and properly partake of the Lord's table? I'll tell you. Nobody. But you see, those who have received Jesus as Lord and Savior through the words of the prophet Isaiah that predate Jesus coming into the world by centuries, we are told that we, that is the faithful of God, are, are wrapped with gar, or wrapped, clothed with garments of salvation, Isaiah 61.10, and wrapped with the robes of righteousness of the coming Redeemer. God doesn't see us and judge us on the base of what he sees and what he hears. Thank you, Lord. But on the basis of who he knows we are in our perfect, holy Savior, Jesus. And it is by him only that any of us merit any consideration of God whatsoever. I don't know what else to say. So I will invite Paul Halley up, one of our elders, to come and close our time in prayer. Dear Lord, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, uh, Pastor Bill, for that wonderful message. Lord, I was thinking while he was praying and in a foreign land, he was talking about uh, Saul being in a foreign land and I was thinking of uh, the story of the prodigal son how the son ran away to a foreign land Lord 
And many of us are in a foreign land, and the Lord is standing there waiting for us to come back, Lord. So I just pray that if you're in a foreign land, the Lord is patient and he is loving and he is waiting for you to return. We just thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.